How are we doing today, church? We good? We all right? Yes. I see this in the back. Wow. That's special. Bless you. Bless you, brother. Kiddos, we love you. We're grateful that you get to go downstairs, learn about Jesus, and grateful that we get to be a church family together. Uh, you should know uh, parents, they're, they're walking down on one of the state-of-the-art lanyards that every kid has a little holster for them to grab. Also, their uh, children's volunteers are walking down with them. Our Connections folks are guarding the doors, and our security team is walking down with them. So we are doing our very best to make sure they're cared for in transition. And please don't forget, parents, they will not be brought back up to you. You're going to have to go down uh, and get them. And so if you're wondering where your kids are, uh, ask any of our Connection folks if you're our first-time guest or something like that. They'll be downstairs near the cafeteria. Would you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21? We're going to finish that particular chapter and move on into chapter 22 today as we continue our series simply titled The Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 21 verses 37 all the way through chapter 22, verse 21. My name is Jason. I serve as one of our uh, elders here at Church in the Square. Grateful to open up God's Word with you today. One of the most, I think, astonishing things about the New Testament, when you read it perhaps for the first time, or the more that you go back to it, I think the more that you realize, it's actually quite surprising to see how many opponents Jesus has. How many people there are who are putting up a front, who are a defensive, who are in opposition to Jesus. But it's even more surprising, I think, for many of us in our modern sensibility, in our modern minds, to know who those people are. Because for many of us, let's just be real, the people who we think are the problem in our country and in our culture are not the religious people, because we are those people. So heaven's sakes, it's not those people, but isn't it interesting? When you look through the New Testament, and when you see the life and ministry of Jesus, the people who are the most fierce opponents of Jesus and the ones to whom Jesus is constantly critical and constantly is speaking out against, it is the religious. They are the elites of the particular church culture of the day, of the temple culture, of Judaism. In particular, it's a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you and I might know them as the bad guys of the New Testament, but if we would have been with their contemporaries, if we would have been alive in their particular setting, we would have venerated them, we would have esteemed them as our spiritual heroes, if you will. We would have saw the ways that they followed the letter of the law. We would have envied the way that people looked to them for spiritual counsel and spiritual advice. And therefore, when Jesus comes, it would have been completely unearthing to us. How is it that now that this rabbi comes and finds his opponents to be those who perhaps we would have otherwise trusted? In Luke 11, there's a story of Jesus being invited over to one of these Pharisees' houses. And when Jesus did not wash his hands in the particular and precise way that the Pharisee expected, the Pharisee asks him, why didn't you do that? And he goes, oh, you're one who washes the outside while inwardly you waste away. Can you imagine having Jesus as a dinner guest? It would have been terrifying. You'd be like, hey, why didn't you wash your hands before the meal? He's like, you need to wash your soul before you die, right? Jesus was an incredible dinner guest to have, and this particular Pharisee receives the summary, if you will, of the life that Jesus was ascribing, the life that Jesus was speaking about, and the life that the religious leaders of the day were giving their life to, a life of external purity with inward brokenness, 
a life of external purity with inward brokenness. You see, religion is a very deceptive project. Now, when I use that word religion today, we're not using it in terms of perhaps the school subject of world religions, suggesting that some things fall within the orb of a systematic belief system and others do not. That's not what we're suggesting. Religion, in a particular way of looking at it, suggests that we believe through moral aptitude, through moral commitment, through moral purity, we can receive spiritual blessing, we can garner God's attention, or more than that, we will earn his affection. So this is sort of a religious mindset. The way we're going to use religion is believing that I can do something morally, behaviorally, intellectually that will somehow get the God of the universe's attention and he will be put on the hook because of my awesomeness to bless me, to give me things, to be something for me. See, religion is deceptive because it begins to give this picture of purity while inwardly there is brokenness, there's deception, there's evil. In, in other words, it's like when I walked away from a coffee shop just yesterday. When I walked away from the coffee shop, I heard a dad say that his kid was bad. And I was like, ooh, that goes against every moral parenting book I have ever read in my life. You don't say the kid is bad. You say what they did. And I start dissecting that thing. And I bring the gospel in my head. And I just go, God, thank you for not making me a father like that poor sap on the deck of that coffee shop. See, I might have walked out of there feeling and, and looking like I had my life together. For heaven's sakes, I was literally just studying Acts chapter 21 and 22. I was walking away from a study session and I believed as I walked away that I was better than that dad at that coffee shop. How deceptive is religion? How deceptive I believe that somehow I had earned God's favor by being diligent. I woke up at 6 a.m., that's right, on vacation. I got up early to prepare my heart to judge that dude right? That's what the whole morning was about. See, I love when I get to preach about all of you. It's tough when in the middle of preparing for a sermon, God's like, this is for you, bud. You need this. See, because what religion tells us to do is to wear masks. In fact, some of you put on your best one before you came here today. Because isn't it true when you come to church, you better make sure those kids are tucked in tight. They're listening. They're doing everything that they're supposed to do, right? So because they're about to present to the world your ability as a human being. You want to present yourself in such a way that if there is a single female or a single male here today that you hope to attract their attention, you're like, I was, I was here early, 10 minutes in fact. I heard the instrumental music in the background as we were waiting for all of you people to show up. And I'm going to be here late and ask questions and I'm really going to display some sort of outward appearance of spiritual immortality that my peers wish that they possess. See, religion tells us to wear a mask. Religion tells us to wear a particular kind of mask that ascribes a particular worldview that looks a particular way while inwardly we are far from the life that Jesus describes. The great Marva Don puts it this way when thinking about the deception of religion. God's revelation unmasks our illusions about ourselves. It exposes our pride, our individualism, our self-centeredness. In short, she says, our sin. But worship also offers forgiveness, healing, transformation, motivation, and courage to work in the world for God's justice and peace. In short, salvation in its largest sense. 
See, the truth of the gospel exposes us to who we really are. Religion tells us to put on the best face you possibly can. So religion is not a large category which there are a number of different options. Religion is the antithesis of the gospel. It's the exact opposite of it. And when you begin to take off your mask and to live in this way where you believe that Jesus covers your guilt and shame, not your performance, it upsets people. It upsets people. We're experiencing this in our church because it leads to a life of confession. And when a couple of people start confessing and set a particular kind of culture where we stop wearing masks, anyone who wears a mask starts feeling really uncomfortable. See, because if we all wear masks, this is just normative. This is what we do as a church. We put on our best face. We throw up both hands during our favorite song. We might even clap on the one and the two, if that's even a thing. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. One numbers sometimes pop up in music, I guess. But ultimately, we try to put on a particular performance that we believe is part of the culture of the church. But what happens when people confess and lay down their mask and trust that Jesus is the one who makes us right before God, not myself? It gets really uncomfortable. And so we will not be surprised then to see a lot of uncomfortable people when Paul tells the story about how Jesus broke and took off his mask. Look at Acts chapter 21, verse 37 and following. These are the very words of God. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led to 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given his, him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, chapter 21, verse 1, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse 6, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, verse 12, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the, that very hour I received my sight and saw him. 
And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you away far away to the Gentiles. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful because knowing that your word exists and prevails and has prevailed and will prevail and never returns void, we are grateful that we are not putting up morality and truth to a vote. We thank you that we are not hoping that things will work out. We are trusting that your word endures. All things wither and fade away. Your word lasts forever. And so we thank you that by your word, first and foremost, we get a clear picture of you, our God. That's what we need. Yes, we have questions. Yes, we have problems and challenges in front of us. But before we tackle any of those, We need, Father, the light of the truth of your gospel, your character, your virtue, your identity to shine brightly from these pages that we might catch a glimpse, a picture of who you are. And so, Father, would you reveal yourself to us today? And even as I say that, I realize it'll be uncomfortable because when your glory shows up, sin is not allowed. Foolishness has to flee selfish desires, sinfulness, and religion that tells me to put on a mask every day, those things will have to be laid down, and that's hard. And so I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are gathered together as the church today. Would you help us, strengthen us, God? Oh, that we wouldn't just look for a moment or a line that is memorable, but may we come lamenting and confessing and made new by you today. What a a joy to know that your word is not something that we have to take notes on today to put to action tomorrow, that your word shines brightly right here and right now, and you can change us on the spot. By your spirit, you can take my hard heart today and make it soft. By your spirit, you can take the anger that may be persisting in a brother or sister's heart or mind, and you can give them sorrow, you can give them charitability, you can give them grace and mercy. And so, Father, we look to you not for what we hope you will do tomorrow through us, but what you will do right here and now through your word. And so, Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my friends here, help us to not be defensive. Help us to not make ourselves to be the exceptions to the rules of your word. Help us, Father, it's so easy sometimes to think, I wish old so-and-so was here to hear this message today and not hear you speaking to us right now. Father, help me. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. Help me to avoid the things that I think are interesting and to take time, and may we all take time to hear you when you are speaking about the centrality of your gospel and the goodness of your heart and your desire and purposes for us, your church. 
So help us, God, as we come to your word. Help us to see through these words your enduring beauty, your enduring truth. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. I want to remind us, Paul is in a pretty bad situation. Uh, Paul has been on his way to Jerusalem over the course of the past couple of chapters. And uh, along the way, many of his closest friends uh, were warning him as the Holy Spirit gave them a picture, this is not going to go well for you. This is going to be difficult. In fact, one of the people that he interacts with on the road to Jerusalem ties him up with his own belt and says, this is about what it's going to be like. You are going to be bound. You are going to be imprisoned. You are going to endure much affliction. To which over and over again, Paul retorts and responds, yes, I know. The Spirit has been speaking to me as well. He's made clear that every city that I go into, I will be met with affliction and imprisonment. And so he persists on not choosing to obey once, but recurringly over and over again. Paul is choosing to obey God's word. Paul is choosing every moment, every temptation to draw him away from what God has made plain and made clear to choose again to obey. And so my brothers, my sisters, I don't know what you already agreed to two weeks ago, but it's important that if that's the word of God and he is speaking to you again to do it, to reaffirm your desire to continue to obey, not once but constantly and consistently. This is discipleship in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to continue to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. This is what we see in the life of Paul. And so we shouldn't be surprised as readers, nor as followers of Jesus ourselves, that when he gets to Jerusalem, it goes down just about like that. Some Jews from Asia come into Jerusalem and they start stirring things up for those who are the dwellers of Jerusalem. They begin to say that Paul goes everywhere, speaking to everyone. They bring the invisible army with them, right? That everybody is saying that Paul is behaving like this. He is going against the law of Moses in particular. He is saying you don't need to be circumcised to be numbered with the people of God, that merely you need to confess your sins and receive the grace of Jesus for salvation. So they're up in arms about that. These Jews also say that Paul was defiling the temple, that he was coming in, not only as impure, but bringing people in who were not pure either, which is, is interesting because the whole point of the previous passage was that Paul was going out of his way to purify himself so that it would not be a stumbling block for Jews. See, all of these accusations are unjust. All of these accusations are unjust. And it, even in that, even enduring unjust and not right accusations. Paul is being numbered with Christ. He is identifying with Christ because is not Christ the one who was unjustly accused of all kinds of heinous evil? Is not Jesus the one who was not only unjustly accused, but unjustly murdered in your place and mine? Not for sin he committed, but for sin he willingly took on himself. See, through this story of Paul coming to Jerusalem, we are reminded of our Savior's journey to Jerusalem which much more doesn't just give Paul an example of how to live, but empowers him to live in that way. See, Jesus is not merely our example telling us what the good life looks like, but he empowers us through his spirit to live in such a way that is worthy of the calling. See, religion has a lot of people that go before us that are our examples. Only Jesus is the one who is not merely our example, but he is our substitute, dies for our sins in our place, and then gifts us his Holy Spirit that we might rightly live in accordance with his Word. So this is all taking place leading up to this particular passage. Now, Paul hasn't said anything yet. If you remember, he's not only arrested, but after he's arrested, he, he has been beaten, he has been hurt by this mob, so he is still bleeding. Not only does he have these physical wounds of victimization, of being, of being hit, but, but 
to be sure, wounds in his soul, learning yet again of the heaviness, the burden of persecution of preaching the gospel and of identifying with Jesus and the people of God. And he hasn't even spoken for himself yet. And so where we're coming here in verse 37 in chapter 21 is Paul now beginning to speak for himself. Here's how it goes in verse 37 through 39. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, this is the local authority who had arrested Paul, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? See, the tribune actually thought he already knew who Paul was. He assumed the way that the crowd responded, the way that they were beating him, that he was this Egyptian who had recently not only ransacked with this particular group of people, the assassins, with 4,000 men, brought this kind of evil and work in Jerusalem. He thought he understood who he was. In other words, he thought that he was a domestic terrorist. He thought he was somebody who had come into Jerusalem to exact a kind of injustice and evil and harm to the people. In fact, this particular story told by the Jewish historian Josephus, this Egyptian was not found. And so people were waiting to find him. They thought that Paul was finally their opportunity to capture this man and make him pay for those sins. But Paul replied in verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in uh, Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. See, what Paul begins to do here is simply identify who he is. I am a Jew, I am from Tarsus, and I grew up in this city in Jerusalem. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. And so Paul asked that he might speak for himself to this particular group of people, this mob who wanted him dead. He wants to speak to them. He wants to articulate clearly to them, first and foremost, who he is, but not just natively, not just ethnically, but he will explain who he is in two particular ways, who he is saved by Jesus and who he is called by Jesus. And in order to do that, Paul's going to tell his story. There are three different places in Acts where the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is told. It first takes place in Acts chapter 9. That's told from a narrating perspective, not from Paul, then Saul's perspective. This now becomes the first place that we get Paul's retelling of this particular story, and he is telling it in a particular context. So we, shouldn't, we should make sure to not just look at the content of what Paul is saying, but the context as well. He is literally speaking for his life. He is literally speaking to a community of people who don't like him, who believe that he has done away with their religion, that he is speaking out against their religion, that he is somebody who's coming out against things that they hold dear and precious. In other words, he's somebody that's telling them, you've got to take your masks off. You've got to stop pretending And in order to do that, he talks about his former life. Look at verse 2. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, likely Aramaic dialect, they became even more quiet. And so they understand that this is somebody who actually gets us. He identifies with us. And the first words out of his mouth, he does that even more. Verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Don't you love how Paul comes out of the gates? 
Not like, you guys are mean. Stop being jerks. It hurt when you did that. He's like, I'm one of you. Sonify and communicate with them that he is on the level with them. He identifies with them in their passion, in their zeal, in their desire to be zealots for the faith. And here's how he continues. In, because now they believe that they're peers. And he's going to say, how much more zealous was I than you are being? Verse 4. I persecuted this way. That's a euphemism for the church, way of speaking about the church, early followers of Jesus. I, was perse- I per- persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness, bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In other words, what Paul is saying, not only do I identify with you ethnically and religiously, but also in terms of passion, in terms of zeal. See, you want to cart me off and kill me. Can I just tell you, I had official letters from Jerusalem, from the religious leaders of the day, from the highest up in Judaism to go throughout the known world and bring men and women in shackles and commit them not only to jail, but he oversees, we'll hear more in a minute, He oversees the execution, the first martyr of the early church, Stephen. So Paul is essentially saying, what you want to do to me, I've done. I get it. I understand. And I was even more passionate than some of you. Why is Paul doing this? They think that he's completely other than. Remember, they thought he was an Egyptian who had come to assassinate, to hurt, and to harm with these 4,000 men. He's saying, listen, I'm not only your kinsman, I'm not only part of you, but I had the same kind of religious zeal and passion. So he's identifying with them in their faith. In other words, I'm not here to disparage what you call precious. I'm not here ultimately to disregard what is centrally important to who we are as a people but I do have a story to tell. And so here's what he says in verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting now, this is Jesus on the road speaking to Paul out of this light, this, this light from heaven, because Jesus is truly the light of the world. So this is not surprising to us to see Jesus embody this glorious, splendorous light that comes and invades Paul's reality in that particular moment. And Jesus speaks to him. And the kind of language Jesus uses is really helpful for us to understand the heart of God. Notice that Jesus, though Paul has just said, I persecuted this way, these people, in verse 4, what does Jesus say? You're persecuting who? Me. Me. I think a really important side note for here for us to wrestle with is many of us believe that we can have a relationship with Jesus and not a relationship with his church. Notice that Jesus that doesn't make sense to him. If you are persecuting the church, it's as if you are persecuting Jesus. There is an inseparable relationship between the bridegroom, Jesus, and the bride, his church. And so when you come at the church, Jesus is saying, you're coming at me. He doesn't even say the church. He says, why are you persecuting me? And he says it twice. So you're persecuting me. How beautiful of the heart of God. That he doesn't just see our persecution, but he identifies with it. And through Jesus, he goes through it. 
In other words, when you are heavy and burdened with the trappings, difficulties, temptations, frustrations of this world, Jesus doesn't just say, I know what you're going through in sort of a patronistic, patting you on the head kind of way. He's like, I have been there. And the harm that you go through, in particular when you go through harm because of your faith, when you are persecuted, Jesus takes that as directly a persecution of him. He identifies with his people. Now, not everyone is hearing this voice, so they're seeing the light. And so verse 9, we continue to, to see this. Now, those who were with me, Paul says, saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that it is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand uh, by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Uh, Paul's life is tremendously altered. Saul here, his life is tremendously altered by an encounter with Jesus. And many of us perhaps claim to have had an encounter with Jesus, an experience with Jesus, but literally nothing is different about us. Paul has this, this way, this experience, this experience on this particular road where he cannot see, he is blind, he has to depend on others. He is rendered into this complete weak state. The one who was the powerhouse of vengeance and injustice against God's church is now having to have someone lead him by the hand. See, what we see is that if you are powerful and you meet Jesus, you will be rendered quite vulnerable in that moment. The powers that you possess meet their match in the God of the Bible on a road to Damascus. It's just so bright, he is blinded, he has to be increasingly dependent on those around him. Those who are working for him, he now has to depend upon. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, now before we get to his words, this is unique to Paul's retelling. We don't get this particular moment in the Acts 9 documentation of this story. Paul wants the crowd to hear. Remember, he's talking to you. This is a devout man who loves the God of the Bible, who follows the rules, the ways of the God of Israel. He follows him. Why is Paul doing that? Because Ananias is about to validate the salvation and ministry of Paul, and so Paul is yet again giving a picture to those around him of someone who is like them, who can identify with them, who is zealous like them, and affirms and acknowledges the work of Jesus, the work of God in Saul becomes Paul's life. Here's what he says, the latter half of verse 13. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. What's not in this particular passage is in Acts 9, where the Lord visits Ananias and gives him a picture of what he must do. Now, can you imagine being Ananias, follower of Jesus? You love him. You love Jesus, resurrected Lord. You are visited by him. You're so excited. He's like, go to the worst enemy of the church because I'm going to make him a Christian. And he'd be like, yo, could I come afterwards just to his small group and not actually be the one who shows up first with this uh, opportunity. Like this, I want, I'll maybe kind of be the second follower or the third friend um, that comes along later. And, and he does. Ananias wrestles with this a little bit of, Lord, are you sure it's going to be safe? And he has to wrestle with what it means for him to obey. He has to wrestle with what it means for him to follow the word of God. And, and he does. Verse 14 he now proclaims this over him, having this vision from the Lord, having this interaction with Saul, seeming, seeing him rendered completely helpless. He said, verse 14, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will 
to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone and or rather of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I think what Ananias was convinced of is now what he preaches to Saul or Paul is he was convinced of the sovereignty of God. He was convinced of the providence of God. And it's, it's in his language. Notice what he says to Saul. He says that the Lord, the God of our fathers, appointed you to know his will. In other words, this is a picture of what we call sovereign election, that the Lord is doing a work by his own volition, by his own will, by his own merit. Notice that the idea of religion sort of falls apart with the story of Saul. If we think God saves us because somehow we have put a spectacular life together of our own merit, of our own virtue, of our own blessedness, right? Then what do we do with Saul who is killing Christians, murdering people, hauling them off to jail? There is nothing impressive about Paul's life to this point. And Ananias says, God chose you. God has appointed you, not just to know his will, but to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. We get these different aspects that not only has God appointed that that Saul or Paul would know the will of God, but that he would see the righteous one. And it's capitalized in many of our translations because that's a picture, a way of speaking about Jesus, that you would see Jesus. And Paul has just seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. That this is not just about knowing the rules and regulations or the will of God, but it's about seeing a person. It's about seeing the Christ. Not only that, but hearing a voice. Hearing his voice who speaks, who woos, who directs, who guides, that God wills all of this by his sovereign mercy, by his sovereign election, by his sovereign choice. And all of this, Paul says, was not just about my salvation, remember he's speaking to this crowd, but leads to my mission, to my purpose, that he might be a witness to the nations, to the Gentiles, to all that he has seen and heard. See, what Paul is communicating is not only his salvation through Christ, but his calling in Christ, all of which is ordained, set by God. Therefore, verse 17 continues in this particular idea. When I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. In other words, what Paul is saying here, the Lord Jesus visits him again and says, get out of Jerusalem, they're not going to accept you. He's like, how could they not accept me? I have an incredible story. I used to kill all these people. I used to haul them off. I used to do this, but now I'm one of them. I'm a follower of Jesus. How could they not believe that my life has been transformed? How could they not understand by looking at me? He's like, they're not looking at you. You're not the point. And he said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to the nations. I'm sending you to the nations. 
See, I think Ananias' response and Paul's understanding of his own story is all anchored in this same idea of the sovereignty, the election of God. And what we understand about the election of God is something that I think we often sidestep and think, well, that's for some sort of like intellectual practice. That's for some sort of idea left to the schooled, left to the people who have degrees in this stuff, right? But one of the reasons that we have a hard time trusting in God on a day-in and day-out basis to care for our children, to care for our job, to care for our well-being is because we do not believe that he is ultimately fully, completely in charge, holding all things together by the word of his power. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want us to see how immensely practical the election of God, the predestination before the foundation of the world kind of act of God. Flip to the right, a couple of books in the Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right there in the middle of second in those, those four. To the right in your Bibles in the New Testament, or just type it in, Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, remember Paul has just come from Ephesus. Paul is now writing this letter back to those particular Christians about the character of God. Here's what he says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul, who just told his story to this mass of Jews who wanted to kill him, he focuses on the election of God who holds all things together by the word of his power. And then he writes back to the Ephesian church, that's not just my story, that's your story if you're in Christ. This isn't just a special thing for varsity-level Christians that the Lord picked the first stringers before the foundation of the world, and the second and third team, that was by your own will if you came along at the right time. He sovereignly chose those who would come to him, that he would lavish his grace upon us. This speaks much to the massive majesty of God. And it is deeply comforting for us when it looks like our situation is broken, when it looks like things around us are crumbling, when it looks like a political system, a school system, or ethnic and, ethnic and cultural relationships are falling apart. I have to believe that there is a God who before the foundation of the world set all things in motion and holds all things in motion by the word of his power. This is not an ivory tower doctrine. This is a day in and day out confidence boosting understanding of the character of our God. That he holds all things together. This is so good for us, particularly as it relates to our own spiritual disposition. Because the God who called me by his merit keeps me by his merit. That's such good news. See, how you are won over is how you are kept. If you believe you are won over because you put a good life together that somehow you put the God of the universe on the hook who made oceans and eucalyptus trees. He was impressed with you because you didn't lie one day, right? That somehow that puts you on the hook. Then the only way to stay in his good graces is not 
to sin, is not to fall short, is not to grow weary, is not to lose heart. You've got to hold it together. But if it is true that you have been saved before the foundation of the world in the heart and mind of God, that he chose you by his merit through his son, then on those days when you're falling apart, you say, Jesus, I trust that you're holding me together, that you are forgiving, that you are reconciling, that you are transforming, renewing, helping, aiding. That's what I had to believe walking outside that coffee shop. I had an ugly view of myself. So really, after I just studied this thing, I'm walking away judging people? How broken am I? How in the world is anybody in my church actually going to live differently if while I'm studying it, I'm living just like everybody else? Help me, Lord. This sermon isn't even held together by the word of my power. It must be held together by the word of his. This is deeply helpful for us, but it's also terrifying. Because one of the reasons that we keep our masks on of religion is because we believe as soon as we take it off, we will be rejected. As soon as we let down our guard, we will be discarded by our friends, by our brothers, by our sisters, by those around us. See, because think about it. Paul, back in Acts chapter 22, he's talking about some pretty crazy stuff. He goes in front of a, like people publicly and goes, yeah, I used to arrest people unjustly. I hauled people off and killed them, men and women, just so you know. This is a kind of thing that we just sort of take for granted. Three times in Acts, Paul's like very broken story of sin is immortalized in God's word. Can you imagine if the worst part of your story was recorded in the Bible and for generations we read about it? I don't want to tell people when I had an urge to flip somebody off, right? And Paul's story of killing Christians and hauling off men and women, breaking up families, is recorded in the scriptures. And in this, he rejoices. How? How could he do that? Because Paul understands that the Lord holds him together, not his reputation. Paul understands that the Lord has called him and is purifying and is making him new, not by his own merit, but by the merit of his heavenly Father. Not by his own work, but by the work of Christ. Are you seeing where we're going with this? That we are such a terrified people, and we are terrified because religion is our hope. Keeping and saving a good face with our brothers and sisters, with our friends, with our moms, with our dads, with our cousins, with our aunties, with our tios, with our tias. We're trying to make sure they think we've got it together. We are all incredibly religious. In fact, Martin Luther, the great German theologian, says the default disposition of the human heart is religion. That just makes sense to us. A meritocracy makes sense to us. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Unless that's me and I've got an excuse and a reason why I did that, then you need to forgive me. Paul presents his life in such a way that is shameless with some of the most shameful things that he could have possibly done because he already knew that his shame had been exposed on the cross through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, what what are you going to say? What are you going to say about me that I don't already know is true about me? What are you going to do to me that is already worse? I'm going to die and absence from the body is presence with the Lord. That that would be dope. That would be great. What are you going to do to me? He has this fearlessness about him, and we regularly live in terror. I remember one of the first times I confessed sin from the pulpit. I was told by one of the leaders of our church, don't do that again because my son was in the audience. And I want him to believe that his pastor is somebody he can follow his example. 
I was a young seminarian, I was a young preacher, and I didn't confess sin in the pulpit for four years because I thought, actually, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to get up front and just go, this is what God's word says, and I, I do it all the time, so come and do this thing with me too. This is what the Bible says. Paul's like really boldly proclaiming the gospel. Let's go boldly proclaim the gospel. Paul's like cool, like people knowing his story. Make sure you share your story this week. I share mine. We don't confess our sin. We keep wearing our mask. See, even as a preacher's kid, I learned to wear that mask really, really well. In fact, we get venerated for it. We, we get applauded for it by living in such a way that seems as though we have got it together. One of the reasons we do this is because we believe that Jesus is a religion. Jesus is not a religion. And so we've edited that over the past 20 or 30 years in modern evangelicalism. We go, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. That's actually led to a very awkward place with millennial Christians, right? Where we believe that, that Jesus is a buddy who I hang out with, who is sort of my example, but never holds me accountable. So I get to keep wearing my mask because a good friend like, accepts, me, accepts me for who I am. So, so what if Jesus is not a religion? What if he's not just a relationship? What if he's actually reality? He exposes reality. He deals with reality. What if Jesus is much more like light than he is like a relationship or religion? See, that's what Paul was met with. He had nowhere to hide. It's the exact opposite of wearing a mask. A mask is this very deceptive thing when we wear it. We put it on. We see the world through it, and people see us through it. We get to curate our own self-righteousness. This is how I want to present to the world. This is how I want to look at the world. But when Jesus comes, he exposes the mask, he tears down the mask, and he ultimately shows us what true righteousness looks like. Because Jesus exposes things. Light exposes things. Light, light tells the truth about who we are. And that's how Jesus came. Jesus came as light, penetrating the darkness, and the darkness could not hide from it. It had to flee See, Paul had encountered this light on that Damascus road, and therefore he had nowhere to hide. I wonder what would happen if we truly became a confessing church. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of church where we don't come to get some sort of like nebulous spiritual nutrients every week, like that's a weird thing that we even talk about. We just came to get filled up today. Okay, okay, that might have some bearing. I'm going to mock it for a minute because I think a lot of it is religion, right? A lot of the language that we use. I really like that song. I really like that sermon. I had a thing with that and some sort of like emotional relationship with the gathering instead of, you know what? Light showed up and we were laid to bear and no one could hide. So when somebody asked me, how did Sunday go? I don't know. I have no idea. Do you think your sermon was good? I'll find out in 20 years if people have been transformed by the renewing of their minds. Right? We love the immediacy, and therefore we love religion. Religious tells us it was a good song, it was a good sermon, my kids learned something, they colored in the lines mostly, they came home, they obeyed for 30 seconds, and then it was off to the races of another week. That's terrible. That sounds like a terrible idea for church. And yet we often do it because we treat Jesus either like a relationship or like religion. And not like light penetrating the darkness. See, if he penetrates the darkness, then I have to come up here and I have to actually say, like, I'm broken just like Paul. I've had to come in the past couple of months and admit that I had a pornography addiction in college all the way into grad school. I didn't want to do that. 
My wife has been going through that. People in our group have been going through that. There is this confessional thing taking hold of our church where people are dropping their masks. And so I just want to let you know, if you like wearing that mask, time is ticking for you. Because what I've noticed that the Spirit of God, how he's sweeping through our church, sin is not welcome here. Not because we, hear me, it's not because we put a really great strategy together. This is how you plant a church. We read a book and now we're doing this thing. It's because the Spirit of God is with his people and with his church and moves in power through his word. So love you, grateful that you are here. I just want you to know the kind of culture that the Spirit of God is beginning to make plain to us here. Like when I am tempted to sin, I literally hear God say, are you ready to tell everyone in your group that you did that or about to do that? Like stop, just give me a moment. It used to be, instead of hearing the Spirit of God say, it used to be like, I can, I don't have to tell anyone because I deserve this. And it's just a moment for me. It's just something like, whatever, no one will ever find out. In other words, what? I can keep wearing my mask. I can keep wearing it. Can you even imagine if we became a church, a people where masks were not welcome? To be sure, it may take some of us time. Some of us have been hurt and wounded, whether through church membership or doctrines or language or preaching or songs or community, whatever it might be, but that ultimately we, we wanted to be in a place where we realized that because Jesus laid open and bare, that he hung naked on a cross, that I can hang naked before him. That I can lay my life down for the sake of my brother or sister, that I can confess my sin and trust, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we believe that the gospel is true, we begin to live this way. And if we begin to confess our sin, we begin to see like heaven start showing up here and we'll begin to have this kind of gospel courage where nobody can throw anything at us because we've already spoken and laid out our worst because Jesus has already made his power perfect in our weakness. Can you even imagine if we became that kind of church, the kind of safety we would be for people who believed that they had to live their life in such a way to the world that they had it all together, but here they could find rest in their time of need. That you could stop running and trusting in your 401k and that second home aspiration. That you could actually trust that Jesus is my hope, that Jesus is my stay, that he is my portion, that he is my help, that he is my power, that he is my resolve, that he is my peace, that he is my assurance because he chose me before the foundation of the world. Therefore, when this world passes away, he will still be my hope and stay. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We have sinned against you. I've sinned against you. And even now, I know some of the things that I've even confessed during this sermon, they're easy to confess at some level because I can put past tense language on it. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to know what it is like, like to live exposed as believers to one another not believing that some among us have things to work on and others of us have to lead them into righteousness. You are our leader, Lord Jesus. You are our great physician. You are the good shepherd. You are the one who leads your people. And so, Father, we humble ourselves before you and thank you that light does not just expose, it also brings life. Light does not just tell me the truth about who I was or what my sin is, but who I am in Christ. 
And so, Father, as we walk in the light, as you are in the light, that we might have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another, may we confess sin. May we pick up righteousness. May we live in holiness that it would be unto your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.